0: There's something so right, something so right and satisfying about seeing the greatest of all time. Of course, I'm talking about Michael Jordan. School a trash-talking opponent. You can go find these videos online on YouTube and things like that. Uh, I saw one recently where uh, you know some you know he has these basketball camps and the high school kid. One of them came in and was trash-talking Jordan. Like he's the guy who's hosting the camp. And, uh, you know, Jordan just does what he does and he pulls up and, you know, I don't know, he's he's quite uh, he's relatively old in terms of a professional basketball player's age. But, you know, he schools this trash talking basketball player. Right. There's something good about that when the trash talker and all of his haughtiness and pride says he can own the greatest of all time. We then get to see a little bit of a display of Jordan's basketball skill and glory, right? In schooling the challenger, there Jordan gets to put the challenger in his place. And it then vindicates Jordan's ability, his skill, his glory, at least when it comes to basketball. It vindicates the glory and the skill of the greatest of all time. Transition. In our passage this morning, that's kind of what's going on. Except we aren't talking about the glory found in throwing a ball through a hoop. We're talking about the good glory found in being the creator of the universe. That's the glory that's at stake here. As the proud want to own God, as opposed to give God all the glory that he deserves. Please turn with me to turning uh, to the book of First Samuel. And this morning we look at chapters 5 and 6. If you're using one of those black Bibles provided in front of you, it's found on page 228. Page 228, if you're using one of those Bibles provided for you. Now, if you are visiting, you might be wondering, like, what happened to the Easter service? <clears throat> well, we are, first number one, glad that you can join. Uh, but it's good to know, good to be reminded that every passage, whether it be the Gospels that preach directly on the resurrection or the Old Testament, that is First Samuel, every passage is, uh, points to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's very clear from Luke chapter 24 and other passages in Scripture. So we can preach the Gospels. We can also preach 1 Samuel about the Ark of the Covenant. And eventually we're going to talk about Jesus, his crucifixion and his resurrection. We have been studying the book of 1 Samuel. And so we're going to continue through the series of the book. Uh, 1 Samuel, not quite sure who was written by, but in terms of a big picture summary, uh, right? it's named after Samuel, not because he wrote it, because he's the first uh, character that kind of comes to the fore. He is the kingmaker. He's called the kingmaker because eventually he'll go and anoint Israel's first king, that is Saul. And then uh, he'll go on and anoint Israel's second king, that is David. And uh, really, 1 Samuel is really about the passing of the torch. The old guard goes and then uh, God's appointed king comes to the fore in David. In 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, though, they are all about God's people learning that there is one more glorious than they are. So if you're thinking of like a big picture overview in terms of four through seven, we're looking at four to six, but in terms of four to seven, this is all about God's people learning that there is one more glorious than they are, one more good than they are, a better ruler than they are. And God teaches them that He deserves all of the glory. So as we look at first Samuel, a question that we all should be asking for is well, whose glory do you live for? Is there anyone more glorious than yourself and where does the lord almighty fit into that god teaches his people that there is one more glorious than they and if you're taking notes here the two points god gets glory over gods other so-called gods and then god gets glory among the people this is called the triple g threat god gets glory that's the triple g over other gods and god gets glory among the people's point number one God gets the glory over other gods. If you're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 5, uh, the setting, it's a dark time for the people of Israel. A dark cloud has settled on his people. And this is really a period of mourning here. Those who were responsible to lead God's people had rejected God's glory and his goodness. Okay, so think about the rulers of uh, God's people. So God's, you know, those people who have been designated rulers and leaders over his people, they've rejected God. They've abandoned God and they have pursued their own glory, which left them abusing God's people. Right. They're taking their resources. We saw that in the earlier chapters of Samuel. And then also not only are they doing that, but they're objectifying God's people using the women for their own sexual immorality. These are the leaders here. They're charged to display the glory of God to one another. And then beyond that, have all of God's people display the glory of God to the watching world but the leaders are living for their own glory and the people, the people, they seem to follow suit in chapter seven. we know that they are worshiping false gods. If you want to turn there, you can, you just skim the first couple of verses there. Samuel calls the people to repent of idolatry. So they have to use the language of scripture. They have played the whore. They have rejected their true husband and gone after other things. They are worshiping other things. And, uh, They have committed adultery against the one true God. And eventually they go into battle with the people around them called the Philistines. And then they they are met with defeat. And right, you would figure that their defeat would get them to actually consider, well, gosh, you know, have we actually abandoned God? Because God had promised that, uh, you know, we would go, we would stay inside the promised land. And here they're getting defeated by the Philistines. You would think that they were going to repent and return to the Lord. But instead, what do they do? They don't pray. They don't fast, at least in this chapter or the previous chapter. Instead, they choose to use the things of God for their own benefit. Even though they didn't love the Lord, they tried to use the things of the Lord for their own benefit. So they choose. They say, hey, look, look, uh, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant, which was this piece of furniture. I'll explain that a little bit later. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant like a rabbit's foot. Good luck charm into battle. And therefore, we're going to beat the people. You know, our forefathers had done that in the past, or at least they had thought they had done that in the past. What they didn't realize was that just because you say God is in the furniture doesn't mean that he's going to be present there. Uh, Think about it this way. Their sin is the equivalent of gluing a statue of Jesus on your dashboard, thinking that Jesus is going to keep you safe when you drive. But then when it comes to the rest of your life, you refuse to acknowledge any one of his commands. You refuse to acknowledge his lordship, but oh, you know, when it's convenient for you, you just stick Jesus on your dashboard and then, hey, you know, Jesus my homeboy. He's all good. He's got my back. That's the sin that the Israelites are wrestling with here. The people that David had mentioned earlier in in the the prayer of praise, you're looking at Eli or Hophni and Phinehas. Those are the sins that the leaders of Israel have been committing and the people are following suit. So what happens in chapter 4, the Philistines, they capture the ark of God. Now I'll take some time to explain the ark. The ark was... Uh, once again, uh, this, this piece of furniture that God had told his people, directed his people to build. And uh, it was about four feet long and, you know, a little bit over two feet wide, two feet high. And it was sacred. It was sacred, not because the people decided it was sacred. It was sacred because God himself had designed it and God himself had determined its purposes among its, the people there. The Ark of the Covenant was to be central in the worship of the people of God, like physically, geographically central. So when the people encamped, right, they were supposed to be encamped around the tent. And, uh, you know, not to get into too much detail, but the, the sanctuary or the tent, in the middle, in the central portion of it, was the Holy of Holies, a room where only one person, that is the high priest, could enter in on behalf of all of the people making the sacrifice atonement. And inside that room was the Ark of the Covenant. It was to be central in its location in the holy of holies. But it wasn't only to be central in the location. It was also supposed to be central in the people's hearts because of what God had determined. Uh, God had determined the function, the purpose, and how it would play out in uh, the people's life. And and what I want to note here is that uh, it was to be central in the people's hearts because of what God had designed it to do. And it was to point... Number one, to God's rulership. We talked about this a couple of weeks, so this should be summary for some of you guys. It, it, it pointed to God's rulership over his created universe. And you get this from the idea of the title of the ark. Look at verse four of chapter four. Four of chapter four. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts. That is, the hosts are everything that God had created, right? So the planets are called hosts, the stars are called hosts, people are called hosts, angels are called hosts. So you think about the Lord who leads his hosts in legion out to battle or something like that. God is the ruler over all of his created universe. And the way it's designed, right, it was designed, uh, there was a gold lid on top, and on top of the gold lid was uh, two cherubim, these heavenly beings. Their faces were pointed down, and their wings were sort of tipped up, you know, symbolizing that this is... The glory of God who comes, this is God himself who comes to rest upon the ark to meet with his people, displaying his presence. Look at the title there again. They brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And so you have this reverence, even in the way the thing is designed. And then you have the people are to be in awe as you're pointed to the heavenly glory, even by the wings being slightly pointed up. So it pointed to God's rulership over all things it also pointed to god's revelation inside the ark were the copies of the ten commandments the book of the covenant and god had promised to speak from the ark of the covenant when god had met there the third thing it pointed to was god's reconciliation god's reconciliation so once again the ark or the 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 ark was to be covered with a lid traditionally called the mercy seat and so the high priest was to go was to go on behalf of all of god's people into the holy of holies to the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle it with the blood of sacrifice, symbolizing the forgiveness that God had granted to his people by his grace. Of course, we know eventually that uh, uh, really all of those sacrifices and even the Ark of the Covenant itself really pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus, the presence of God. Um, But we need to understand the Ark of the Covenant here. We need to understand what it pointed to. And if we don't, then this these chapters here in the book of first Samuel, we end up thinking like if we, if we look at these chapters where we see God's judgment, we think, oh, you know, God is all about retribution. I kind of used to think about that, too. But the, the, all the things that the ark pointed to pointed people to a God who desired in his love and grace and mercy to draw near to sinners. He pursued sinners with the ark. He said, OK, look, you guys have abandoned me in your sin. I'm going to give you a way where we can have fellowship with one another. That's what the ark symbolized. The ruler drawing near to his rebellious people, revealing himself to them and reconciling himself to them. And so we see even in judgment here that we see reminders of the fact that God is a loving God. He desires union with his people. But see, the problem is that the people didn't care. They didn't care about his rulership, his revelation, or his reconciliation. They didn't care about his person once again. They only wanted the benefits that come with the sovereign Lord, only insofar as it fit their agenda. The ark was like their Jesus on the dashboard. Who is God in that situation? They are. They're using God for their own benefit. They are acting like they are God, and that really is the definition of sin. Has God created all people to be in a relationship with him, and all people have rebelled against God. We use God in many different ways. That's the essence of sin. We determine that we ourselves are going to decide what is good and bad. As I mentioned earlier, right, this is a dark time. You see rebellion. You see sin, not only in Israel's life, but the people around. And uh, if you wanted to see the sin of Israel's people, uh, the the sin of the people's life, you can look at reread those chapters this afternoon. Anyways, as summary, right, they had set aside the glory of God. They had abandoned his word. God was judging the people for their sin. And as a symbolic stamp of judgment, a baby from the very priests of God, a baby from the priest line is given the name Ichabod, which means basically the glory of God has departed. It's a name that summarized the entire period of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The glory of God, the glory of the Lord had departed. But... We know that God reminds them that there is, in fact, one greater than they are, more glorious than they are. And there's no way he's going to abandon them. He is the God of the covenant. He is, the, it is called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He is a covenant God who is faithful to all of his promises. And he had promised his people that one from Israel's line would be a blessing to the nation. So there's no way he's going to abandon his people, even in the worst of situations. And the situation, indeed, is about to get worse. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Look at what happens after the Philistines capture the ark. The people are defeated. Look at 1 and 2. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer, that is the Israelites' land, to Ashdod, that is the Philistines' land. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Pause there. For the Philistines, this is an absolute win. They knew about what the Lord did to the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. They knew about it. And uh, we saw that in previous, previous chapters where they're saying, wait, hold on one second. This is, the, this is Israel and God fights on behalf of them. And they don't bow to the Lord. They say, let's go and fight them. Be brave. Even though we know that God himself had afflicted them with various plagues. They knew that uh, the Lord had thrown the sea upon Pharaoh and his chariots. But they respond and say, but we. We have defeated the Israelites and captured Israel's God, so to speak. Imagine the victory march of the Philistines. As they return, there were five major cities. Just imagine the celebration, the singing. We are the champions of the world. There's no time for losing. As all the people gather they then take the Ark of the Covenant verse 2 and set it up beside their God. The sun sets, the Philistines eat, and they drink, and they sleep, thinking the Lord is not only set up beside Dagon, but has now been submitted to their God, Dagon. The whole situation begs the question, is there one more glorious than they? Is the Lord more glorious than Dagon? Is he really the ruler but, of course, we know that our point, as I've already given away, God will get the glory over other gods. Look at uh, verse 3. Look at the answer, right? You see what happens in verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, right? They're maybe still hungover. They're drunken. They're, they're happy. Uh, Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Look who is fa- who, Look who is bowing face down before the ark of the Lord. This is a great reversal here. Now, if you were the Philistines, you think, okay, maybe this is coincidence. Just maybe. All uh, right. Uh, actually, my mom, uh, she told me this story when she was 13 years old. She was a Buddhist, came from a Buddhist family living in Malaysia. She says that when her older sister became a Christian and was evangelizing her, that there was some big earthquake in Malaysia. I can't verify the story. I'm not sure. Uh, but all of the, the, the idols in the house fell over, but everything else remained in place. Uh, it's fascinating. You know, is, is God in that place? Earthquake? I'm not entirely sure. It's, she certainly felt convicted, but that's kind of what's going on here. You're just seeing the display of God's power, even when nobody's watching. The morning after, Dagon is falling face down on the uh, to, uh, before the ark. Okay, so what do they do? Maybe it's coincidence, right? Look to the middle of verse three. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. This is just this is humorous, right? This is their God. But there in verse 4, you look there and see what happens. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This time Dagon is dismembered. Uh, There is so much going on here. And it all demonstrates that God alone is Lord. Why does God get the glory? Because he alone is God, right? This here, you shouldn't just see this as, uh, you know, simple happening, circumstance, uh, coincidence here. This should remind us about the battle of the gods that takes place in Egypt, right? You remember the Philistines have already cued us in to think about Egypt and everything that God had done to Pharaoh who was considered divine, a a divine being, Right. We got to remember that. Uh, So when Pharaoh says disparagingly to Moses, let's back up here. um, uh, Pharaoh says, I don't know this, Lord. So I'm not going to obey him. And moreover, moreover, the word says, I will not let the people go. I don't care what he says. And I'm going to do what I want to do. This that that right there is an affront to the lordship of the one true God. So this here is, uh, again, the battle of the so-called gods. Of course, Dagon is not a god. Uh, Scripture regularly makes fun of idols saying that they are nothing. Uh, And there's even in in Psalm uh, chapter 96, there's a play on words, Elohim, that's speaking of the pagan gods. You can use it to refer to the God. You can also use it speaking of other gods. Elohim is Elilim, and Elilim means nothing. The gods are nothing. right? But nevertheless, this is a battle of the gods. God is showing himself that he gets the glory over the nation's gods. We know that God is the only one there is the greatest of all time. Isaiah 45, five says, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. And that's exactly the point of what's going on here with Dagon, right? Look at the almighty Dagon first. He can't even manage to stay on the shelf by himself. He couldn't even manage to put himself back together again. This is needy little Dagon in need of a little medical alert necklace, right? I have fallen, I can't get up. And then the next morning, he is dead little Dagon, dismembered. And what is he doing? Laying prostrate before the Ark of God. This is humorous here. The Dagon incident demonstrates that God alone is Lord. He alone is the greatest of all time and forever will be. He puts the deities of Egypt and the Philistines to shame. Now, there's an obvious, you know, as we seek to uh, apply this to ourselves. There's an obvious lesson here, right? Don't trust in idols. Don't trust in idols, right? They are dependent on you. And therefore, they're not worthy of your worship. They're not more glorious than you. So why worship them? And, uh, you know, I know some of you guys might be idol worshipers yourself. Maybe you come from families that worship different idols. But friends, I pray that, it, you know, if I was in need of deliverance, if I was in need of some sort of salvation, if I was looking for answers in my own life, I hope you wouldn't let me worship the product of my own ingenuity. I hope you wouldn't let me worship uh, the product of my own labor, something that is dependent on me, right? I'm the one who produced the thing. It stands to reason that things that are dependent on me will always offer a lesser deliverance than I would myself. In that situation, it would almost be better to worship the the thing's creator, right? Man himself. In that situation, now, think about this today. While many of us might not literally bow down to any man or woman, we can still basically worship people as gods. And how do we do this? Okay, we do this by living for other people's approval. We do this by living for other people's praise. We do this... uh, by following what they say and we don't care what jesus says uh, but, but should we live for people are are people more glorious than we are uh, one thing that we can consider is right that they are dependents themselves not only are idols dependent on their creators but people are dependent as well just think about birth right did you do anything did your parents do anything the, those people that you live for did they do anything to bring themselves into this world no, they're completely dependent on their own mothers and fathers. So, yeah, OK, we thinking about like who is who sustains themselves, right? Who has greatest power, who is autonomous? It's not idols and it's clearly not people. So so much for trusting in our own strength. What are our options then? Shouldn't OK, you're saying that we shouldn't worship the products of our own hands. We shouldn't worship uh, the people who designed the thing. Uh, how about worshiping creation? How about the all powerful son? Even the sun, though, is not a good alternative. But we're talking about things that are self-sustaining, things that are autonomous. I mean, the sun blows up. If the sun blows up, why exactly am I going to worship that thing? That thing's headed towards destruction, and it's going to kill me too. So here, we're only considering the aspect of self-sustaining. We see that God will get the glory even when no one's looking to inanimate objects just so the Philistines would know that God is powerful we haven't even begun to consider why human beings are the way we are, right? We can think about design like, you know, OK, if we're going to worship something, it should make sense of ourselves because we are dependent people. What are we dependent on? You're right. The sun is not relational yet. We are relational. That doesn't make sense. We have a conscience. The sun doesn't have a conscience. Why do we have a desert, a desire to worship and exalt certain things in the first place? But friends, if it's not worth trusting in idols, if it's not worth trusting in those who make idols, if it's not worth trusting in the universe, who then should we trust in? Psalm 146.5 says, Blessed is he whose hope is in the Lord his God. Very clear. Blessed is the man whose hope is in the Lord his God. And what's the reason there that that psalmist gives? He says, for he made the heaven and earth The sea and all that is in them, the creatorhood, the lordship, the rulership is ascribed to God himself. That's why the man is blessed who hopes in his God, because he's the Lord over everything. There's a reason, obviously, why he has the title Lord. He's the Lord of creation and nothing, friends, can stack up against him. Not even the powerful spiritual realities behind whatever idols might be around us behind whatever spiritual realities that might be in the idols of your own family's homes here god's glory is manifested in the dagon incident but it ultimately points us to what jesus christ did on the cross think about how god reversed the situation right how he flipped the script there just when we thought that dagon was going to rule over the lord god gets the glory over dagon god is victory god gets the victory And so the apparent victor, that is the Philistines, that is uh, Dagon, the victor becomes the vanquished. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who were the apparent victors? Satan and sin. Satan from the beginning has been twisting God's word and working against God. He is known as the deceiver. From the human's perspective, Satan and sin win the victory in the crucifixion of Christ, right? Let's just... Uh, dare I say, uh, just kind of remove God from the story and just think about a non-Christian's perspective here. Satan and sin win the victory in the crucifixion of Christ. Even though Pilate, the, the, the then Roman ruler, found no guilt in Jesus, when he heard that the Jews cried out for his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, he went on and killed him. Nails through his hands. Nail through his feet. Spear through his side and let him hang on the cross to suffocate by all accounts. It appeared that the Lord had lost as he died on the cross when he was laid in the tomb. When we see in the gospels that his disciples are discouraged and feeling the sting of death. And while the supposed victors do their victory dance, but you, you know, history, if you know the Bible, on the third day, Jesus Christ got up from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan himself. I mean, just imagine that scene there. You should think about it. the Philistines. They're having their victory. Dance. The devil is partying, kicking back on his table with all of his minions, and he has to be stopped by one of them in the middle of his own victory party with the news that the one you sent to death destroyed death itself. Just imagine the embarrassment, the folly. In Christ's death and resurrection, Satan and death were mocked. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 15. Nothing here can stop the good glory of God. The Romans wanted to kill Jesus. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus, Satan had launched his own attacks of evil against the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, even so determined to display his good glory, even uses their sin and evil intentions to achieve victory in Jesus Christ, the Lord. Satan can't stop Christ. Sin cannot either. And of course, we know sin could never stop Jesus Christ because it was on account of sin that Jesus Christ came to die. It was on account of sin that Jesus Christ came to die. Of course, sin's not going to stop Jesus. Jesus came to take it upon himself. Jesus came, Mark 10, 45. It says there, he came not to be served, but to serve and die as a ransom for many. Dying on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever turn from their sins and believe on him and repent and believe. This is why God displayed his presence among his people. And, and clearly the Philistines are sinful people you shouldn't think of the philistines as just mere innocence here you know we can turn to a number of passages where it talks about how all men have rebelled against god we all have turned aside the philistines too they didn't care uh, about let's say samson when they tortured him they didn't care that he was a prophet of god and a judge of god the philistines used him for entertainment and they tortured him basically telling god to get lost And everything they did, they did to the name of Dagon here. They're doing this right in the face of God in a similar way that Pharaoh and the Egyptians did themselves. They worshipped other things. They gave the glory to themselves, glory to Dagon, these things made of their own hands. Friends, this is the God of the Bible. This is God that Christians worship. And this is the God who gets his glory. Whether over gods like Dagon, especially over Satan, especially over sin, And he did this, friends, once and for all by sending his son, Jesus Christ. He knew that we had gone astray. And so he sends Jesus to die in our place, bearing the wrath that we ourselves deserve so that there would be reconciliation. So that he would reveal himself so that he would pursue his people in his love, his grace and his mercy and call them back. That's what's going on here. We know that God redeems people of all sorts of tribes, tongues and nations, the Philistines, Whoever, if they were to repent and believe, then they would be saved. So that's point number one. God gets the glory over other gods. Point number two, God gets the glory among all peoples. God gets the glory among all peoples. This is in chapter 5, 5, and it goes all the way to 7, 2. In these chapters, we see God undoing what the people did. His sinful people, like they lost the ark of God to the Philistines. And here God is bringing it back. As God judged the idols and the Philistines, here he also judges the people. That is the people who don't really care about him. Don't think about Christians. You can't really compare Old Testament Israel with the church in exactly the same way. There were people in Israel who genuinely didn't care about God. But here he judges those people, those types of people, Uh, But we look first at how God judges the Philistines. Look at what happened when the Philistines bring the ark to one of their cities named Ashdod. Uh, Look there in 5, 6, and 7. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, "The the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Right. They're getting it. They're getting that there is one more glorious than they, one more glorious than Dagon, And the Lord here afflicts the people with medical problems. But really, keep in mind, they're bringing this upon themselves. They knew what God had done to the Egyptians uh, in the Exodus. And that's in four eight. They speak about those types of things. And still they choose to go against the great Lord. So in verse eight, what do they do? They decide to send it to another one of their own cities. They're being afflicted by tumors and things like that. And so they send it on to one of their own cities. Look there in verse 8. They send it on to a city named Gath. And what happened there? Verse 9. The hand of the Lord was heavy against them. And God afflicted them with tumors. And so what do they do after that? Well, then they send it on to another one of their cities called Akron. And look at the end of verse 11. What happens? The hand of God was heavy there too. Friends, this is another reversal here. It's another example of the victors becoming the vanquished. At the beginning of chapter five, it's the Philistines who are indeed the champions. And if you are the battle champions, right, you go and have a victory march. You go and parade the spoils of war to all of the different cities. Everybody is there to watch and to cheer them on here. No doubt. As the ark of God goes around the city of city, there is a victory march. And in front of all of their people, and it is the Lord's. He himself is parading his presence and power before the philistines the victors have become the vanquished this is supposed to be a parody putting the philistines to shame right instead of bringing the ark around in victory and great pride and hubris right instead it's god himself who's going to afflict the different peoples and bring his own ark around displaying his power if you look at verse three eventually the philistines they call their priests and their magicians together uh, to, uh this is uh, chapter six Uh, they call their priests and magicians together, their leaders to decide what to do with the ark. Look at verse three. It says, they said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Now, friends, this next section, if you're skimming there, is going to get a little strange. Uh, The Philistines recognize their guilt, praise God, at least a little bit. And they want to make an offering to the Lord. So once again, the Philistines with all of their leaders, their their five leaders, uh, right? They decide to go on and make an offering of five golden tumors and five golden mice, right? I said this was a little strange. Uh, But what they seem to be doing here is making sacrifices of the very things that afflicted them. Um, And they seem to be adopting the practices of the Canaanites who were living around them. Okay, so what in the deal, what's the deal with the five the tumors and the rats? Uh, some scholars think that the tumors were the swelling of the lymph nodes. So in our bodies we have these lymph nodes. Um, don't quite know what they do. We can all ask PK afterwards, uh, David Lee afterwards. So you ha- you have these uh, lymph nodes in the armpits, in your groin, and in the sides of your neck. And these swollen lymph nodes are symptomatic of something called the bubonic plague, which still exists today. I went and googled it, and it's uh, you know if you get squeamish you don't want to look at this. Um, But anyways, rats are carriers of this bubonic plague. And another name for a swollen lymph node is called a bubo, thus the bubonic plague. Interesting fact on Easter Sunday. Uh, And then in verse 5, if you skim there, we see that rats were a huge problem. They're ravaging the land. So that's why some people at least uh, think that these people are making, you know, the five golden tumors. We have no idea how big these tumors are. Uh, And then, of course, the five golden rats. Anyway, here... After God's own victory march, the Philistines, interestingly enough, they want to make a guilt offering. What a rebuke to the people of God. The Philistines, though, they don't seem to really want to worship the Lord. At least, at least they feel some degree of guilt before the Lord. They themselves say in 6.6, don't harden your hearts like the Egyptians did. It seems like the Philistines in some ways understand better than the Israelites uh, who deserves to be worshipped. In the early chapters of Samuel, the leaders of Israel feel no remorse for their sin against God and his people. Once they finish making their golden tumors and mice, the Philistines decide to send the ark back to Israel, right? God is going to get the glory He, uh, you know, you know, Israel, they were supposed to be a display of God's glory themselves and they're failing. So God here takes the ark around and God is going to get the glory. They devise this whole plan to see if their judgment really is of God. Right. And they say, okay, let's take two cows who have never been yoked together. Right. they have never been strapped together, never done work. but, But let's separate them from their calves. So let's keep the calves at home. They're going to send the cows on, bringing the ark back to Israel. And if the cows continue going, then we know it's of God. This is what, this is what the Philistines are thinking. This is not what God had told them to do. This is what they're thinking, right? Because what mother cow is going to abandon their calves? Uh, and uh, you see there the conclusion 10 to 16 of chapter 6. The men did so and took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, and put the box with the golden mice and images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beshemesh, that's the territory of Israel, along the one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far to the border of Beshemesh. Now the people of Beshemesh were reaping their, their wheat harvests in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows the burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon a great stone. And the men of Beshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron, their own place." God shows them that there is one more glorious than they. And so God gets the glory among the nations. The Philistines, though, they didn't seem to care much for who God was in the beginning, but now they know that God had done it. But what about his own people? That's the Philistines. What about his own people? The people he took to himself like a wife who turned to then other gods. Well, friends, in our passage today, God is also intent to show them that there is one more glorious than they. They had rejected God. They didn't care about him. They were using him. They were objectifying. Look at 619 to 7.2. And it says there, right, the ark goes to this place. Uh, and it says there very plainly, right, after the Philistines have just been, after the hand of the Lord had just been heavy upon them. It says there in 19, he struck some of the men of Beshemesh because they looked upon the ark of God. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beshema said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar and gave charge to the ark of the Lord. From that day that ark, or from that day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You know, as the passage begins, the judgment is still there. So keep in mind, it was both the Philistines and the Israelites who did not care about God. They had determined themselves to be God. And you can tell because of the way that they disregard God's word, right? They're looking into the ark. Well, the, the, the background behind that where God says God struck 70 men because they looked upon the Ark of the God. You know, we're not quite sure how exactly they looked on the Ark or at the, the Ark. You know, did they take off the lid or not? Were they, were they uh, non-Levites who had touched the Ark of God? Uh, but we do know that their gazing upon this Ark conveyed a certain irreverence for it. You know, they just says they didn't care about God's Word, so they're not going to care about what God wants of this Ark. According to God's Word, only certain people were to carry the Ark of God. Only certain people were to go into the most holy place of worship to look at the Ark. And only the Levites were to ensure that the lid was on the Ark. And that's all in Numbers chapter 4. So what is implied, once again, is their irreverence and apathy to this Lord. They didn't care about his lordship. The people here, again, seem to be setting aside the word of the Lord, disregarding it, choosing to do whatever they please. And so some of them are judged. It's sad that it takes judgment to move a little closer to reverence. In some ways, I think that's what goes on in our own hearts after we have trusted in various so-called gods, whether that be money, sex, power, whatever, your jobs. And then those things, you know, they almost betray you. Relationships, people, they betray you. And so we're left, in some ways, discouraged, ravaged by our own sin, seeing such weakness, our own dagons dismembered right before us, but yet we bow before them with superglue, wanting to put them back together. Friends, even in our own discouragement, they're your own judgment, that judgment on that so-called God and maybe your own sin. is supposed to move you a little bit closer to the reverence underneath the lordship of God. Look at their almost reverence in verse 20. They say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's an attitude we haven't seen at all. And when we hear that, we think, yes, that's good, right? That's a possible recovery of the right understanding that they are people who live under the Lordship of God, the good Lord, whose laws are good, whose kingdom is good, whose reign is good. We, we're supposed to think that they and no one is, is supposed to see themselves as right in their own eyes, but instead they're supposed to live to the praise of his glory, displaying his goodness to other people, not preying on others sexually, Stealing people's resources, torturing others that the Philistines did. No, that's that's all the kingdom of evil there. But here this uh, there is a slight recovery of the right mindset that they had lost so long ago. The priests of Israel did not care for the Holy Lord. We know from chapter seven, once again, that the people uh, were playing the whore and they were giving themselves up to idolatry, bringing in gods, setting them up next to all of their other gods making him common. But here God moves them a step closer to recognizing who he really is. That is the Holy Lord. And friends, do not just think when you hear Holy Lord, do not just think, oh, this is the Lord who does good things. He's a moral God. It is true that he is a moral God. uh, But when it says that he is holy, the first thing that we should think about is that he is our Lord who is set apart. He is pure. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. No one can stack up to the greatest of all time. There is none like him. I am the Lord and there is no other. So in their first question, who can stand before the Lord, the Holy God? You know, I mentioned that it is a slight recovery of a mindset that they had lost so long ago. And I say slight because in their next question, uh, they seem to be acting just like the Philistines. Look at verse 20 in the middle. Then there says to whom shall he go up away from us? What they're trying to do is the exact same thing as the Philistines just did, sending the ark away. One translation put their question this way. To whom can we send it to be rid of him? That is God. You see, they haven't quite repented yet. Chapter 7, there is repentance, but not quite yet. Not quite wholehearted repentance. Repentance. Looks like at this point in time, they are really more like the Philistines and less like their holy God who calls all people to be holy for I am holy. So we see here the meat of the fact that God gets glory among the peoples and then of his own people. And uh, by way of conclusion, we apply this to our lives, this point here. We today are helped by the Israelites at Beshemesh because they force us to ask their same question. They force us to ask who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. If there is none like him, if he is worthy of all worship, if he does indeed judge and if indeed he is the victor. If he has drawn near to us as sinners, then we need to ask the question, how can we stand before the holy Lord, this holy God? Because he will call us to account for our sins as sinners. We need to consider our own lack of holiness. In fact, our unholiness, our unrighteousness in light of his holiness and righteousness. This is where we go back to the fact that everything the ark symbolized and all that God's purposes for the ark, right? Rulership, revelation, reconciliation. it, it, It just speaks of the fact that God will be present among us and that he will call us to account. The ark reveals so much about god's being the ruler desires fellowship with his people god wants to speak to his people revealing himself to him and he is intent dead set on forgiving sins and keep in mind friends that the ark is all by god's good design if you want fellowship with god he says look i'll give fellowship with you just according to my way and not your way as i am the lord this point points us to the lord jesus christ the Lord Jesus Christ prov- proves his lordship and rulership by the act of taking on flesh and entering into his own world. Christ is the greatest evidence of his, God's revelation. So turn over to the book of Hebrews. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. And uh, you see here that God's revelation of Jesus is the clearest revelation of himself. We know from Scripture that He is the exact imprint of his nature, as it says in Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1. As you're turning there, just be reminded that Christ is the greatest evidence of his revelation. Look at that. Look there. Chapter 1, 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son Here, this, that, that section right there speaks of Christ being the greatest evidence of his revelation, but it also speaks of Christ being the means by which God reconciles sinners to himself. This was the point of all the Old Testament sacrifices for decades, centuries, over a thousand years, etc. The blood sacrifices pointed people, prepared people for the true and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is why when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he cries out, in John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. While this passage shows us that God judges justly, whether the Philistines or even of Israel, those people who don't believe in him, it, in the, it is in the larger context. His judgment comes in the larger context of God's love for his created people. He has Jesus in mind even though we have rebelled against Him. You know, some people read this passage, or passages like where they see God's judgment, they just want to read, let's say, two chapters of judgment, and then they forget the larger context that God's pursuing His people. And So they complain that God is judge. But just logically, if you think about it, logically, we want God to be judge. When something goes wrong and some injustice has been done to us, don't we want justice don't we cry out to God to God, for God to carry out justice? Right When we think logically, we want God to judge. But as one author says, we just don't want him to judge our own sins. But if we know rightly, we know that the good news is that God is a righteous judge, a perfect judge. And even greater news is that God is the most loving and most merciful judge you could ever meet. And it is in the cross of Christ where we see so clearly god's justice his right judgment and his loving grace and mercy meeting one another in the judgment that he laid on jesus christ god sent his son to die on the cross to bear our sins once again the wrath that we ourselves deserved that is the necessity of judgment he's gonna he's not gonna overlook one uh, sin if he did that then that just cracks the door wide open to him being an imperfect judge in fact an unrighteous judge so, we want him to judge perfectly. This is the necessity of judgment. Why does God do that? Why does God put our sins? Why does he not overlook? It's because his love, he loves his people so much, he wants to deal with every single one of our sins. Not one of them goes unpaid for. Every single dollar that we owed, so to speak, he takes care of. Every debt that is upon our backs, Every burden that is laid upon our shoulders because of our own sin, knowing that death was being held over us by Satan, God removes one by one on the cross. Being the perfect father he is, he does that in order to save and in order to bring about reconciliation through the blood shed by his son. He he wins, he achieves forgiveness of sins, restoration into his family justification the motivation of this judgment on the cross is love for his people three days later jesus christ got up from the dead showing that payment was made in full and in doing so god vindicated himself he vindicated christ in the resurrection and in doing so god showed all that is everyone to the ends of the earth that christ's sacrifice has been accepted forgiveness of sin given to all once again Everybody who would ever repent and believe friends in the cross and in the resurrection, you see God gets the glory, the greatest reversal taken place. God gets the glory in defeating Satan, sin and death. And God gets the glory as this good news that we, you are hearing today, this good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the very ends of the earth. And as people turn and believe on him, acknowledging him to be the one true and living savior, the lord jesus christ if you're visiting with us today and you do not know yourself to be a christian that is a follower of jesus let me encourage you to just think about that is there anyone more glorious than yourself anyone more glorious that you can think of who you could believe on depend on it is not yourself it's not anything that could come from man but is in your very own creator that is the lord friends repent of your sins and believe in you too will know this forgiveness this is what god is about he is the ruler He has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and he desires reconciliation with the very ones that oppose him. Repent of your sins and believe. Who is this glorious one who deserves all worship? It is God alone. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. Lord, we give you all the glory and the honor and the power that you rightly deserve. And even where we fall short, because we know we do, we thank you, Lord, that there is grace that you, by your spirit, help helps us uh, to know you more, to worship you more sincerely and to live to the praise of your glory. Lord, we pray that our lives would be dedicated to living under your lordship and your wonderful reign of grace and love. We thank you, Lord, for the right standing, the justification that we have, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been credited to us by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the adoption that we have as you have brought sinners into your very own family to experience you as our Father. And we thank you for the grace that sustains us, the grace that saves us, and it also sustains us. We pray, Lord, that we would live in this grace even today.